I could not stop screaming and crying for three solid hours. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome back to Stigma-Free Vet Zone. We are continuing our conversation today with former Navy Corpsman Mark Foreman. And uh, just to refresh you after the first episode, Mark is on his way to Bethesda, Maryland, uh, to the hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, with catastrophic injuries suffered in a six-day battle when his company of 83, 82 or 83 men, were surrounded by 1,500 North Vietnamese regular army and ambushed and lost 80% of their company in the first 10 minutes of the first day of the battle, either killed or wounded, and went on for five days, Mark laying on the jungle floor until they could be medevaced and sent to Bethesda, where Mark is now in his journey that he is sharing with us. So let's go back and welcome Mark Foreman. Mark, welcome back. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, so I spent five months um, at the Bethesda Naval Hospital in a body cast, I'd already gone through 25 major surgeries um, to uh, debreed the wound that I had in my hip. Most of my right hip was blown off. And I also was exposed to a bacteria called osteomyelitis. Um, I had uh, a lot of uh, infection uh, in my wound because I laid on the mountain for those five days. And so that was the main concern was to get a hold on uh, and to control that bacteria. So they pumped me every day with huge amounts of penicillin. And it took, um, it took about four of the five months that I was at Bethesda uh, to get the bacteria under control. Um, even though they told me that it was, it was still in me, but it was dormant. And that uh, in about 20 years, it would raise its ugly head again, and I'd have to go in for emergency surgery. Um, anyway, that's, that's so I, I laid in the isolation room with three other guys in body casts uh, for those five months. Uh, slowly, slowly healing and getting the bacteria under control. And then after five months, I asked the, the surgeons if I could be released from Bethesda uh, to go to a VA hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, 
which was only 30 miles from where I lived in Ames, Iowa. They agreed to do it, and they told me to, um, they told me very strictly, don't let any more surgeons cut on you for at least two years. You've got to let that bacteria settle down. And when I got to the VA hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, um, this doctor came to my bedside about 20 minutes after they put me in the bed. I was still in a body cast. And they, um, the doctor said, I've looked at your records. I'm going to schedule you for a full hip replacement in two days. Now, remember, I was told by the surgeons at Bethesda that I should not have any more surgery for at least two years. I told the, the doctor, what do you mean? I, I, I have osteomyelitis. You can't do any more surgery right now. And he just arrogantly flipped through my records, which were about this thick. No exaggeration. And he just flipped through them and said, I don't see where it says you have osteomyelitis. I said, okay, get me a phone. I called my parents and told them that this doctor wanted to do surgery on me in a couple of days. And uh, I cannot do that. So they, my parents contacted an orthopedic surgeon in Ames. He contacted the doctor at the VA and told him to send him my records. And sure enough, you know, it was all over in my records that I had osteomyelitis. And so the, the guy wasn't able to do the surgery on me that could have and more than likely would have killed me. Um, and when I found out that from the other patients that were in the VA hospital at that time, that they were doing all kinds of surgeries on us veterans um, that were unnecessary, it really, really pissed me off. Really, really pissed me off. But, you know, there I was. So I, I stayed at the VA hospital for two months um, before they took the cast off. So I'd been in a body cast for eight months before they removed it. And then um, they released me to go home uh, to my parents' house and start physical therapy there in Ames, Iowa. And the physical therapy was five days a week for six months before I was strong enough and able to get up on crutches and get around with crutches. And uh, as soon as I was able to get around on crutches, I moved out of my parents' house and into an apartment where I very quickly uh, got a hold of a lot of drugs and, and uh, drank a lot of alcohol um, every day, all day long for about four or five months. I realized that I was spiraling down a drain, that my, I, was, I was just out of control and that I didn't want my life to end this, this way, uh, that I, I needed to find my purpose. So I'd been living in an apartment for um, about five months 
and I I had let my apartment get filthy. So one day I decided I needed to clean up my act. I spent all day and all night. Um, I took everything out of my apartment. I mean, the stove, the refrigerator, the tables, the, the sofas, uh, everything out of my apartment. I took a garden hose in there and hosed the whole thing down and took sponges and, and towels and dried it all off. It took me, you know, I probably started in the morning and didn't finish until about three o'clock in the morning the next day and got everything back into my apartment. Uh, then I got in my car, drove out to the country, parked on a gravel road, and it was still dark. And I, I needed to do some soul searching to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I, I knew in myself at that time that life was not worth living anymore if I couldn't be doing what I loved to do. And that was art. I loved art. But I wasn't, I, I didn't believe that the VA would help pay for me to get art training. However, as the sun was coming up, it was a beautiful summer morning. And I, um, I decided that I was going to try it anyway, see if I would go to the regional office down in Des Moines, regional VA, um, talk to a vocational rehabilitation specialist and asked if they would be able to help me get into an art school and whether or not they would pay for it. And the guy that I was talking to leaned over his desk and looked at me in the eye and said, where do you want to go? We will pay for as much art training as you want. And I started crying. Um, I This was a dream since I was a kid to be able to see if I was a, a really an artist. And uh, so the next day I uh, started looking for art schools and I decided to go to Chicago Academy of Fine Art. And that whole first year in art school, I felt like a round peg fitting in a round hole. I was where I needed to be. I was with the people I needed to be with. I was in, in, in art training, which is one of the freest vocations a human being can get involved in. Um, you can find out who you are in the arts. And I needed to, after spending uh, that time in Vietnam and having been wounded and seen a lot of other guys get killed and wounded, um, I, I needed to define who I was and figure out who I was. And art activity allows um, a student to really find out who they are. At least that's, that's what I believed, and, and, and it was working. Well, after the first year in art school, um, the school closed down. And... I quickly found out there was another art school in Milwaukee called Leighton School of Art and Design. So I made application there, was accepted, and was able to start there the next fall. And I, I loved, I loved um, drawing and painting, and I was showing myself that I had real talent. 
you know, and that I loved doing what I was doing. And when, when I was active in doing an art project, I didn't feel any pain. Um, I was, I was distracted in being really into and focused on what I was doing to forget about the pain that I was having in my hip, uh, which was literally like a butcher knife stuck in my hip. But I was, I was seeing that if you're doing what you love to be doing a lot of, um, if you've got pain, the, you don't feel the pain anymore. And so Art became even more important to me. Uh, it was a it was a type of therapy that was showing me that my brain could I could focus myself, but I had to be on something that I loved. If I didn't love what I was doing, like washing the dishes or scrubbing the floor, I'd have a lot of pain in my hip. But if I was doing art, I, I didn't have the pain anyway. Art, art became my dream, and it was coming true. I went to Leighton School of Art and Design for a year and a half before I had an amazing epiphany that I wanted to carve stone. Stone represented permanence to me, and it was a beautiful material, and I was very physical, so carving stone was just so natural for me. And I decided uh, that's all I was going to do is carve stone. I stopped going to my regular classes, went out to the um, bronze sculpture area in the back of the school and set up a, a, um, a space for me to carve stone. I didn't care what, what this faculty was going to say. Um, but at the end of that semester, after I didn't show up to any of my classes, the Academic Standards Committee wanted to kick me out of the school. And so they formed uh, an Academic Standards Committee. They let me present my case um, that this is, I mean, this is an art school. I'm here to do art. What's the problem? You know, uh, basically that's what I was saying. And they still decided I should be kicked out of the school. Well, the, the dean of the school just happened to be uh, an ex-Marine. And I, he knew that I was, um, or I told him I was a corpsman with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. And so he overrode the decision of the Academic Standards Committee and let me use the studio in the back of the school. Well, at the end of that year, the school, this school closed down. Leighton School of Art and Design closed down. I quickly found out there was a really good school up in Minneapolis, uh, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. So I went up there and I talked to the officials there and told them all I want to do is stone sculpture. And they said, fine, you know, we'll provide you the studio and you can do what you need to do. And I loved every moment that I was carving stone and, and found out that the images that I was carving had so much to do with telling me who I am. Um, I wish I could show you pictures of, of some of the work that I've done. Um, but the, initially, I, I carved what I called horned creatures. 
They were very powerful um, gargoyle-like uh, creatures uh, with horns, but they were part human and part serpent. And I was defining the way I saw humanity, that a, humanity is a really strong predator. Uh, it's a beautiful predator, um, but at the same time, it is a predator. Humans are predatory. Uh, not only on each other, but other animals, other life forms. Um, we prey on everything. Mark, let me interrupt. Uh, we're speaking with um, former Navy Corpsman Mark Foreman, who's uh, doing a beautiful job of guiding us through this uh, recovery, that, that things that you found that were healthy for you. But you describe something that I would like to ask you about quickly, and that's you you referring to this art was helping you to define who you were. So would it be fair to say that when you came home from Vietnam, you didn't know so much anymore who you were or what you were all about or where your life was going? I wanted, I wanted to believe that I hadn't changed at all when I came home and got out of the hospital. I wanted to believe that I was the same Mark Foreman that I was before I went to Vietnam. But when I started school and started getting into these arguments with my professors, it was, I, I surprised myself. I didn't know why I was so angry, you know, especially at authority. And it was because of, of all the horrible decisions made by, you know, um, the brass in Vietnam that were getting so many of us killed that shouldn't have been. And so I was angry at authority, and I, and I was just discovering that, oh, my God, I am different than before I went to Vietnam. And emotions, my emotions became a really important part of who I was. I was, res I was respecting the emotional part of my humanness in a way that I'd never recognized before that I, I had a choice to be an angry person or to be a person who wanted to help change society, but at the same time um, figure out who I was in the mix. It was, art was telling me, it was speaking to me, saying that you're not the same person that you were uh, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Mark, let me ask you this question, because I, I believe a lot of us felt that way when we left Vietnam or, or left uh, traumatic circumstances that we were going, leaving that war zone, leaving the military, going back to life as we had known it before, same friends, same activities, same interests. Uh, that's an astonishing thing to think it, when you look back on what you actually went through, that you were going to come home from that, that barbaric. <laughs> Uh, devastation and be the same person you were beforehand. Uh, yeah. How do we even find that to be a realistic thought? Well, all we know when we go in as a soldier into combat, all we know is who we were before. But the trauma of combat does things to us that we don't recognize when it's being done to us. 
And so when we come back, we want to believe that nothing's changed. You know, I'm still the same guy I was before. Well, I wasn't the same guy physically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I had to figure out, and, and it was my responsibility to define who I am. It was not the military's responsibility anymore to tell me what to believe and what to do. It was now my responsibility. And before I could make really good decisions, I had to define myself. You know, I don't know if you understand that. I, I do, but I think the insight is so remarkable for a 21-year-old man to, to have that insight. It was forced. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us come home and, and that person that we were before who doesn't exist anymore leaves us in sort of a limbo of not knowing who we are. And right. typically, who's going to show us who we are again? We, but right. we don't have the concept that we have to be the ones that show ourselves the way to who we want to be, take the experiences we've had, who we were before, and now form them into something that we can be in the future. And I think right. that is a very dangerous place to be when you don't know who you are anymore and you don't know if you're ever going to be anyone again. Somehow, I was able to stop myself from going down the drain. Somehow, I told myself that my life is more important than just being a drunk or stoned on drugs. I don't know where that came from for sure, but it was there. Significant moment. Really significant. And, and to have the will to realize I needed to change my behavior. But how was I going to do that, you know? And so art school was, was my path. I knew I loved doing art, and I found out when I'm doing art, I don't have pain. And, and believe me, I had pain. I've, had, I've lived with pain. still do. It's been 52 years now. And I, I'm, I'm not going to get into explaining, you know, my pain. But believe me, I, I experience a lot of pain every day. But I've learned where to put it and not let it control my life. And if I'm doing what I love to do, then I'm controlling my life. I, I think this is so significant to the educational background of what our podcast is about, Mark. You have to stand up and take responsibility and understand if you're going to move on, you have to be your own best professor, your own best general, your own best guide, and you may not have the answers, but you can certainly go out and find the answers. You can find the education you needed. Now, at the same time, I was going to art school and creating things that had great significance to me. I got into meditation. And, and you know who influenced me to get into meditation was the Beatles. Um, they went to India, and, and they all learned a lot about meditation in India. And, and so... I started meditating, and it was like a fish to water. It helped calm me down, and, and it gave me the tools to calm my brain, to stay focused on what I'm trying to do here is to define myself and be honest with, with when I'm doing these stone sculptures, um, they're coming from my subconscious, and my, my subconscious knows a lot. And when I can get my subconscious to show me what's important and what's important, the most important thing I believe in life is to 
learn how to love. Um, that is kind of a spiritual thing. It's an emotional thing. It's psychological too. Um, but when, when I was going to Leighton School of Art and Design and I was doing meditation on my own, I heard about this guy who was coming to Milwaukee who was going to have a three-day workshop that was called a non-drug approach to a psychedelic experience. This was in 1972. And the title of his workshop really caught my attention. And I knew that, that the kind of therapy that the VA was offering was not, it, it didn't touch the problems that I had. You know, they were, they were primarily Freudian psychologists. They didn't know anything about post-traumatic stress and how deep it is and on so many different levels. So I decided I, I, would, I would sign up for this non-drug approach to a psychedelic experience three days. And in those three days, he had us, well, gosh, I wish I had all day to explain um, they were non-conventional approaches to first relaxing us. There were 12 people in the room. And he showed us different techniques of relaxing that I, I wasn't familiar with before. And the 12 people in the room didn't know each other. So we spent a lot of time getting to know each other and talking about what we really liked about each other. He started in that way. So there was a real positive, you know, um, beginning of, of us all coming together, not knowing each other. Then he showed us some breathing techniques to help calm our bodies, calm our mind. The next day when we came uh, upstairs, that's where we were all converging and spent the whole day upstairs. He had us start chanting, you know, like <clears throat> the simplest chant that most everyone knows is, oh, you know, but when 12 people are all doing the same chant at the same time, it's like it, it opens up a certain dimension I don't know how else to explain it. It opens a, a dimension in our in our brains and our hearts that expose kind of another reality, another reality of energy going on. So about three o'clock that first afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, he had us do a chant. And while we were doing the chant, I started feeling that no one in the room wanted me there. They wanted me gone, like a, a type of paranoia. And I was convinced that nobody wanted me there. So we finished the chant, and he had each of us spend a couple of minutes describing what we were feeling and seeing during, during the chant. When it came to me, I said, I don't know why, but I, I know that you don't want me here and um, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna have to leave. 
And Bernie Aronson, who was the lead, he's the one that put this whole thing together. And he knew I was a Vietnam vet. Um, he said, Mark, do you want to you work on your Vietnam experience? And I thought, yeah, what do you mean? And he said, come in the middle of the circle, because everybody was in a circle, lay on your back. He came and laid next to me and put his hand on my lower abdomen. And he said, okay, um, tell me what happened in Vietnam. Right away, I went to the mountain and started talking about what I was seeing on the mountain that, that day. And his hand that was on my lower abdomen started getting so hot, it was burning my skin. And I was just ready to pull his hand off of me. And he took his hand off. And uh, this is hard to understand and hard to believe, but it was as real as real gets. It was a, a huge ball about the size of a bowling ball that rose up in my lower abdomen and slowly came out through my stomach, through my lungs and out through my mouth. And I could not stop screaming and crying for three solid hours. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. It, I was like a waterfall. Of, of letting go of all this pain. After three hours, I stopped, and Bernie said to everyone who was still waiting for me, he said to them, anyone who wants to help, come in the center. We're all going to lift Mark above our heads. I mean, this sounds like a cult thing, you know? But everyone came into the center. They all found us place to grab me. They lifted me above their heads. I became a cloud. I had lost so much, some kind of psychic weight. I felt like a cloud. I felt like I was floating. Plus, I felt all the support of all these people around me. They put me down and I when, when I was that cloud, I was a cloud of love. I mean, I couldn't believe how much love I had for everyone in the room and how much love I had for being alive. I mean, it was, it was really quite an experience. We're speaking with Mark Foreman, a former Navy corpsman. Mark, this is just a, a spectacular story. And whether it's a cult or not, I think there are, there are certainly the aspects of it that many of us felt and that is that heavy burden on our minds, on our souls, on our total being of what we experienced at war or our time in the military. So to regurgitate that, to get that off, of course, that's an enormous, enormous uh, shedding of, of burden. But on the opposite side of that, you also mentioned, which I think a lot of us felt, was that sense of not knowing yourself very well, not knowing who you are, or even being aware that you have all of these uh, angers or these pent-up feelings that uh, the experience left you with, 
But a lot of it comes from that whole sense. And again, not shifting to stigma because I want you to stay on your, your story. That stigma, I, I can't tell this to anyone. So, what, I mean, it's in your imagination that you can't imagine these people even want to be with you because yeah. you think they're seeing what you see inside of you. And it if was seeing what's inside of you, it's what you hated inside of you. <laughs> you were afraid they, I mean, it, so it, it all makes a lot of sense. But I think that I'm still so very impressed that you had this understanding that you needed to take control of this, get it out of your system and, and be the guide in your own life. You're, you're like your own shaman going through this. So uh, don't, don't worry about us thinking that this might be a cult or something because it, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Uh, yeah. And the main thing I was left with was love, was, was this powerful, powerful love. That if you can be engaged in life and know that love, I knew that love was in me. It was in me. My culture, my society would not allow it to be expressed in the way that I could see it now. You know, and when I did afterwards, after this weekend workshop and got together with friends um, and there were times when I would talk about how important love is, you know, it, it a lot of people just don't relate. They just don't relate. And I understand they've been culturalized the way I had been culturalized, uh, that love isn't, you know, it's a nice thing. But uh, it's 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 much bigger than nice. It's it's incredibly powerful. But but if we go back to your experience on the mountaintop, where several times you experienced and you you're, you're very aware of this, that you were shutting down. You were shutting down oh, your emotions, oh. all of your emotions. In fact, I think we even had to stop and explain to the audience when you said you were getting numb. We weren't speaking about physically numb. We were talking psychologically, spiritually numb. Emotionally. Emotionally numb and just shutting down. This right. is the change from that. So you're shutting down to all of the horror that the human race can produce. But now you're finding all the beauty that equally balances that that, that is available to you too. But you have to get there. I had fallen into a black hole. I'll, I'll try to make an analogy. Combat is going, is falling into a black hole. And you, you forget that there is light for a while. But due to these experiences, I put myself into situations where I was having these experiences that were bringing light back to me. And, and knowing that, my God, when, I, when I, I think I explained how the love I felt for my parents when I was in the hospital in Japan, um, it opened up the, the, the um, rational understanding that I had shut off all of these emotions in order to deal with the insanity I had to deal with in Vietnam. And, and it was so important to wake up. And I think it's very important that we explain this or discuss this as a rational, logical reaction to our, to our experience so that when we come home, as you've expressed in, one, in several different ways, you, you don't know who you are anymore. So you have to pretend to the world that you do, pretend that right. you're okay, everything's all right when it's not. When you are, as you say, emotionally in this black hole, uh, th this is so common to many of us uh, 
And, and what you're saying is so important from the standpoint of being your guide, fearlessly wanting to get out of that black hole, and you have to be the guide. So if you've ever wanted to really be a Marine and really wanted to be courageous, now <laughs> now's the time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I had to be. I had to put myself out there. You know, I mean, really out there in order to, and and when I say out there, I mean going to that weekend workshop was really putting myself out there. I didn't know what was going to happen. And there were times when I felt like I was in some kind of a cult, you know, but at the same time, wow, there were these incredible things happening, you know, and, and, and they were good things, really good things. But, but they must have made you feel secure enough to be able to share this. If we stop and think about it, three hours on a floor crying and screaming, you cannot imagine how much of an experience has to be compressed into your mind yeah, that yeah. you would have that much in a group that you have never really met before, because we certainly know that one of the, one of the greatest challenges in seeing a mental health profession is establishing trust with them. And yet and you here, know, you did it. You know, I think another real important thing that I was teaching them, that combat, war, is so unimaginably horrible that this is what it does to people. I mean, how many civilians out there have ever seen any combat veteran go through something like I went through with that screaming and crying and release of pain, um, psychic pain. How, how many civilians get to see that, get to experience that? Very, very few, but these people did. And they felt the, the, the power of what was going on. And what was going on was that the, the window of love was opening up for me. And, 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 the, and the, the love that I had, if I could now go back to my stone sculpture, the love and the passion that I put into carving stone was just, and, and the images I'd end up with at, at the end of carving a piece were so important to defining not only who I was, but what humanity is. Humanity has all of this potential to either be constructive or destructive. You know, we are all born with that capacity to be very destructive or really creative and, and constructive. Let me ask you this, Mark. I, I hate to keep going back to this, but it, it's such a fascinating aspect of it because it makes so much sense that you're even inclined to say this is psychic or this might be weird, but it's actually, and, and people have said to me, wow, that's really deep. Well, but you have to go deep because the experience was deep. And, you know, when somebody says to me, well, that's really deep, I, I don't say anything, but I feel happy for them that they don't have to go that deep yeah. because it's going deep is only the result of having been deep. But it, right. it's fascinating that you had this experience and what you're doing now is really healing internally. You mentioned that these people would never like you even though they don't know you. So you, there must be so much internal destruction, that you, but you, you're working on healing the internal spirit and not really as focused on the external connection. But, right. now, but now the art is taking you there. And, the, and these techniques that Bernie Aronson used were so non-conventional. 
you know i mean they were just uh on a very different plane unless we go back five thousand years when it was common (laughs) (laughs) right right so anyway Uh, yes continue on with the with the the stone sculpting okay so i gave myself when i started carving stone with this great great passion i gave myself 10 years of carving stone i told myself when i began carving stone this is really important you know that i that i show myself what i can do and but i'm gonna i'm gonna limit it to 10 years so after 10 years of carving i probably did oh right around 800 maybe even 900 different stone carvings and i sold all but two of them i mean i was i was really riding high um but after after when it was into the 10th year i could feel myself needing to put my passion and my love into something else i wanted to join the larger society you know before when i was doing my stone sculpture i was in my studio all day long i wasn't talking with people well, maybe at night yeah when i go out but I, I was i was pretty isolated for those 10 years And when I came out of that need and that passion, I went into a kind of a six month depression. And I knew why I was depressed because I could feel myself needing to go in another direction. I decided I wanted to put myself back out into society with this great love and this great passion. And I decided I, I wanted to become an art teacher to share my love and, and passion for art with, with kids. And so I went back to school, got my master's degree in, in art education, and um, ended up teaching for 20 years in the schools. And it was all about love, all about respecting these kids in a way that I, I could project how much I loved them and respected them. And uh, it, it, it was just showing me how powerful love can be. Well, do, um, do you think you were also helping them to express through art their, their own personal feelings with all of this? I hope this so. Life? Yeah. I hope so. You know, I mean, what percent of us end up being artists? You know, not a very large percentage. But there is a large percentage of people who respect and appreciate and love art. You know, art is a very important need for humans to um, express. Especially since you found it as your path to this bigger connection to getting outside of the love you had inside or the even the darkness you had inside. This was your connection to get externalized after being internalized it, you've done the, you've done the internal repairs significantly now it's time to take that love and connect to uh, the the bigger love that's out in the world the general love of, of the world would that be a fair right. right and to test it out as a teacher you know making love a primary part of what i'm doing as a teacher if i'm not helping those kids develop their sense of self and that they are worth a lot then what's it all about? You know, if all I'm teaching them is to do rote memory stuff or something like that, the dogma of life, um, 
they're not they're not loving themselves. They're just doing what society is telling them to do. And this is creative. I, I have to say, though, Mark, I'm very, very happy that now you have gone back to school for the third time. And, and I'm very happy to hear that you didn't close this school down because the first two you went to <laughs> closed down. And, well, and, and this one managed to stay open in spite of you, I guess. But, yeah, I, I, I still remain <laughs> opinionated about some, <laughs> yeah. especially when it came to art. Yeah. You know? But, but th- again, and I don't want to belabor this, but I'm going to say if you were to go back to when you first came home and were in Bethesda, was any of this love, any of this interaction with the outside world, any of this interaction outside of who you were, the the surface of your skin, that internal dark hole you were, did any of this exist? The only thing that existed as far as my, I was beginning to understand that I was a very emotional creature. That, and and it wasn't until my experience in Japan when I pulled the sheets up right. over my head, that I realized, oh, I do have emotion, really important emotion. You know, that connection with my family was just, wow. Um, it, it, it allowed me to realize, oh, there's something going on here I need to know more about. Absolutely. How, how can I get back as an emotional person? Because the combat made me non-emotional. Um, I mean, really, other human beings were just hamburger to me, truly, just hamburger that I had to try to put back together. And that was the black hole. That was, That's the black hole. Yeah. And, and a good friend was killed right before I was wounded. Right. I mean, I was surrounded by horror. Yeah, I think it's that black hole that a lot of us feel we're in. It's interesting that most people describe being in the darkness. They're in a dark place. Everything is the yeah. darkness. Uh, yeah. And very, not often, I, I think what, what you're helping with is not necessarily to follow the same path to what you've achieved, but the hope and the awareness that the path is there if you look for it. It may not yeah. come in the same way. It might come through... Right. Uh, who knows, kayaking or fishing or uh, poetry or some other some other way. But there is, if you start looking for it and have the courage to find it. And follow follow your path of love. Yeah. You know, I mean, don't don't back away from it. There are, there are some people that think that love is a weakness. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They couldn't be more wrong as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of us, are, we're afraid to love because we know how quickly that could be taken away. Uh, and and how many of us are are shown true love yeah. when we're when we're kids growing up, you know? Right. My mother. Yeah. Anyway, we won't go into that. <laughs> we won't go into your mother. But, <laughs> but 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 again, I think these are really important little technicalities of the experience we had because when we come home. We have gone off to some other place as part of the military and and been part of the horror of the human experience, the, the human yeah. spirit. Now to yeah. come back, we don't realize that part of the healing is to balance that with some sort of way to make life better, to, to find out how can we use our energy now to do the opposite of whatever we're feeling that has put us in that darkness. And, that's and to make it and to create a kind of a foundation for the path realize that the damage wasn't just physical yeah oh yes because most of it i went over there primarily as a physical young man you know i mean i wasn't i wasn't that involved in spiritual pursuit or knowing myself emotionally and and psychologically 
but uh, it became more and more aware that the path that I was on when I came back from Vietnam was I had to figure out who I was. And I realized that I wasn't just physical. You know, I was, I was emotional and psychological and spiritual as well. And those, all of those categories had to be really studied by me because I was going to invent myself now. I let society and my culture invent me, but um, now it's my turn to to figure out and, and and make my own path. Now it's your turn to be your own best drill sergeant, your own best professor, your own best right. guide, your own best shaman. That yeah. I think that's so important to understand that a mental health professional is certainly not there to do that for us. They're, they're there and they play an important role in, in guiding us along so that we can find those answers, but we have to be able to take that step to say, yeah, I want to get out of this. I, I want, right. it, 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 it's so important to understand that the energy of retrieving your soul has to come from you. And, and one of the first steps I took to get on the path was to get into meditation. For me, that was, that was just so welcome to find out that, my goodness, I could control my mind. You know, I could control my mind. I could, I could calm it down and let my subconscious come to the surface and examine it. And, and uh, it, was, it was really, really the, the beginning of the path back for me. We're here visiting again with former Navy Corpsman Mark Foreman. So, so Mark, now you've left the 10 years uh, of Sculpting Stone. You've uh, completed 20 years of teaching the young children in, in school, art in school. And where do you go from there? Okay. Well, I was beginning at the, at the end of my 20-year stint in teaching. Um, I was starting to have pain again in my hip. Um, pretty serious. And I found myself leaning against my desk a lot when I was teaching because of the pain. And um, so I, I decided, okay, I, I can't keep doing this. I'm, I'm in, in too much pain. I had, I guess, like when I did my stone sculpture for 10 years, I kind of used it up. And then I found the passion of teaching after 20 years i'd used it up got to move on find something else to express my love and my passion for and so when i retired from teaching first of all i had a lot of faith in myself that i would figure out how to find meaning in retirement and and to hold on to my purpose in life which was to love so it didn't it took me two years after retiring from teaching to, you know, work it out in my mind and in my heart. What is out there in the world that needs to be changed? That's unfair. That's just not unacceptable that's going on. And I, what I saw that was unacceptable were homeless veterans living on the streets in the United States, the most powerful, the wealthiest nation on earth and there were, at, this was in 2008, that I, I just became incensed and angry that our society was allowing this to happen. And 
So I decided we had to do something to, to end homelessness for starting with veterans. We had to end homelessness for them. So I belong to Veterans for Peace. We have a chapter here in Milwaukee. And so I talked to the guys in my chapter about, hey, how about creating an, an initiative to help end homelessness for veterans in the city of Milwaukee? And they all thought that was a good idea, but only one other guy was willing to really get down and dirty with figuring out how to go about raising money uh, where to find these homeless veterans, how to treat them, um, how, how to raise money to buy, or not buy, but we rented a couple of houses. So I, be, I threw my passion and my love into, try, into trying to help homeless veterans. Never done anything like this before. I'd never had uh, really an experience with homeless veterans. And I didn't realize how many of them we're dealing with mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues. You know, I mean, that's stuff that, that's hard to deal with. And I didn't have any training in it, but I figured we would find people who were trained to help, you know, in those ways. So we started, my, my, my uh, friend and I started the Milwaukee Homeless Veterans Initiative. We got on the radio, we got on TV. Um, I learned how to write grants. Um, we, we went out into our city to abandoned buildings where homeless people hung out and found homeless veterans there in abandoned buildings and in parks around the city. Um, they would hang out in parks. Um, we were the only ones in town that were going out and finding homeless veterans. The VA wasn't doing that. The VA was just, they had offices where if you're homeless, you could come and see what the VA can do for you. And that was, that was good, but there was still way too many veterans that were homeless. So we went to find them. And we, we were able to, um, I was able to, to get a, um, what do you call it, seed money um, somebody I knew that had a lot of money, that had a lot of heart. I talked him into giving us $15,000 to help get our, our organization started, uh, which they did. And, and, and then that's when we rented a couple of houses and brought homeless veterans into the house and gave them certain responsibilities. And, and uh, it, it, it turned out to be too difficult. Uh, we hung on for a couple of years um, trying to provide housing for veterans that had these um, mental problems and, and drug and alcohol problems. But I was pulling my hair out by the end of those two years. Um, and so we gave up that aspect of providing um, housing because it was expensive, you know, um, and so then we got into, um, well, the VA, the, the Veterans Administration, we went to them in the beginning to see if they would be willing to help us in any way. They weren't at all. And so we just decided, okay, we're going to have to do it by ourselves. I learned how to write grants. 
I uh, got really good at it. And, and um, after three years, I was raising $300,000 a year. And then I got um, another year or two, I was raising 500,000 a year by writing grants. And, and um, when the VA saw that we were having all of these concrete results in helping veterans, they came to us and asked if, we, if they could join us at the table. Now, we ha- it took four years for us to build up enough credibility in the eyes of the VA who have all the money. Um, it took four years before they, they knew we were out there and they were watching us, and they, but they finally came to us after four years. And they had just started what's called the um, HUD-VASH program. It's a federal program where housing and urban development formed a partnership with the Veterans Administration to um, get veterans off the streets. So that, that helped tremendously because they paid for the housing, but they needed the homeless vets that moved into the housing had to have furniture. So we, our organization, put the word out to our community by radio and television saying, this is what our homeless veterans need. We need tables and chairs and beds and sheets and pillows and, you know, all that you need um, when you move into a place and you have nothing. We actually ended up having to get a warehouse to store so much of this furniture um, and found a guy a very wealthy guy who owned an, uh, a warehouse, and he gave it to us. Um, you know, I mean, ask and ye shall receive kind of thing. That's, that's what was happening. We were asking our community to help us help homeless vets, and people came from out of the woodwork. Um, and, and some had no money, but they wanted to help, so they became volunteers, uh, we needed, at one time, we had 45 volunteers um, just volunteering, coming in every day to help uh, with um, arranging the furniture in the warehouse and a lot of other things. So now it's been going on for 12 years, uh, still operating with a budget of half a million dollars. And we've helped over 10,000 homeless veterans um, get shelter and furniture and food and clothing. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really proud of, of, and that's the power of love. You know, that, that is the power of love. And, and love gives you the power to try things you've never tried before. We're visiting with former Navy Corman, Mark Foreman. Uh, yes, the power of love, Mark, but would you stay on top of that part of the healing from the darkness, from the, the black hole that you described that you were in, is getting out of yourself and making it uh, better for other people, improving the human spirit. And uh, this is actually therapy for anyone who wants to get out of their own internalized darkness is to get out and rather than be a victim of it, uh, do what you can to make the world a better place to help the human spirit. And so this, I guess, in a long winded way of mine is therapy for you. Oh God. Yes. Yeah. I'm involved with a lot of peace and justice organizations as well. But yes, it's every time I do something to try to make things better, it's coming from the spirit of love. 
And, and you know, when you stop and think about these people all throughout history that have made us a more civil animal, um, they're coming from love. They're, they're using that side of themselves to make things better. Can't be afraid of love. And I think when you're in that black hole, again, that you've described, you can't be afraid to come out of the black hole because a lot of times when you're in that black hole, you don't believe there's love out there. You you are oh, shut down. It isn't out there. That isn't even a consideration. No, it's not when out you're there. In the black hole. So you think you are doomed to the black hole for the rest of your life, and that's yeah. just not the truth. And, and as that, long as you, as long as you think it, that you will be doomed to this, but once and the magic, I call it magic. Some of us wake up inside and see the light. I'll talk about it in metaphor. Um, and, and the darkness just disappears. It gives life meaning. Um, but we could even extend that thinking to a narrower band of a person's life where you could do whatever you can to make the life of just your family inside of your house better. Take away the anger, take away the drinking, take away the drugs, take away the concerns, take away the spirit of a, the house that is negative, that's dark. Don't bring the people and make them suffer from the darkness that you're in. Even that goal to make home a safe place emotionally and spiritually for the yeah. rest of your family is an extraordinary goal. It's huge and it's a great start. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that is the that is the start. I think is with when it comes to love, it starts with your family. It does. It has to start at the family. They're the bullseye. It doesn't even make sense to go out to the second levels of a bullseye if you wanted to think of that as society and do all these great things. If at the center of your life at home, the, the center of the healthcare unit at home, uh, you're not paying attention to the absolute right, uh, right. emotional and spiritual health there, and, and so just that is a goal to set for ourselves to make and, and here's people. something here's something i think it's really really important that finding love can come in so many different forms you could start with your dog you know you could start with your cat you could start with playing an instrument um, you find out how you connect with the world around you and find out what parts of the world around you you connect with wow that was really cool you know or i love uh, that man <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um but each of us comes to love in, in our own way but you gotta kind of keep your heart open or want to keep it open to finding love you know, if you if you don't want to find it, you won't. Right. But I think it's a good comparison or a good offset or a good balance to that thinking, Mark, would be that if you don't go out and look for it, then be very aware of what you're doing to your family in a negative way. Be very aware of what you're adding to the world by, by not being uh, in touch with love, by being in touch with that darkness. And I think if you just open your eyes, all of us can see what we're doing uh, to the people that we claim to love and the people that claim right. to love us. We can right. see what we're doing that. Yeah, but it's up to the individual when no they want to open about. their eyes. Mark, uh, we are coming to a point that I think would be a good break because I, what I would like to do, and especially share with the audience, is you will go on after this point with uh, the Milwaukee uh, Veterans Homeless Initiative 
to have a very, very big downfall with uh, medically with your hip when this osteomyelitis comes back. Oh, yeah. And it will come back to be exactly what the doctor had told you 30 (laughs) years earlier. There's some real good scarring here. Yeah, there will be. And I'm wondering if you would you like to come back and share that with us? Uh, Maybe. maybe, Yeah, I would love it if you would, too, because it's an extraordinary story of, again, the war coming back to haunting you and extraordinary surgery that you will have to go through on your hip and your thigh bone. And maybe a shorter episode, but I would love it if you would uh, come back and continue educating us with this wonderful story. But I sure sure. do appreciate and love you for everything that you've done up to this moment. Well, thank you so much for creating this venue for us to tell our stories. Well, again, this venue is not, I haven't created it where everyone who is a guest on this podcast, a family member or veteran is coming here because we want to make that transition from military to civilian life, a healthier one, a safer one. And this is this is part of your therapy too. Oh no, no question about it. I, yes, no question about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's all part of being getting out of ourselves and being part of making that tra- transition better because we could have done it a lot better, a lot easier, with a lot fewer pitfalls, with a lot less damage to ourselves and the people around us. So, yeah, it, it is something that is very, very valuable, but it's not uh, something that is specifically mine. This is Bob and I are the host only of a group of people that want to make this transition better and safer and healthier and quicker. So sure. we thank you for the educational component you're adding to it, Mark, and come back and visit us again. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.